Friendship. One word and a flood of emotions and memories run through us all. Fun times, fights, tears shed, secrets shared, laughs, adventures, and more, all wrapped into one word, friendship. As one of the driving forces in our lives, the desire for community and care, for trust and belonging, for motivation and support, it is only natural that friendship is a much-explored idea and theme in literature, from young adult books, who doesn't love Harry, Ron, and Hermione, to canonical works. Classic novels are full of friendships that drag us in and make us reflect on our own loved ones. Tom and Huck, Elizabeth and Charlotte, George and Lenny, Aubrey and Maturan, Sula and Nell, Jean and Finney, Sancho Panza and Don Quixote, the list goes on. In 2012, Elena Ferrante, one of the geniuses of our day, added her own fictional friends to the pantheon, Elena and Lila. Ferrante's Neapolitan novels, four in total, trace the complicated and powerful friendship between Elena Greco and Lila Cerullo from adolescence into old age. The friendship, which asks questions about the characters, as well as about humanity at large, is equal parts emotionally resident and intellectually engaging. Through the friendship, readers are invited to consider the following. What is identity and how is it formed? What is the purpose of an education? What is the relationship between violence, gender, and classism? What is the value of language? Can we even trust our own words? We will explore all this and more today on the Thousand Lives Podcast. Hi there, and thank you so much for listening. I'm Ivan. And I'm Troy. And this is the Thousand Lives Podcast. The Thousand Lives Podcast is focused on exploring and discussing literature, from the age-old classics to contemporary works. We will be doing deep dives on the books that you know and love, as well as put books and authors in conversation with each other in what we hope will be fun and unique ways. Now, before we get started... We want to give a quick warning to our listeners. This episode will contain spoilers, so when you hear this sound, you should skip ahead. We will provide timestamps in the description that you can use as a reference. Thank you. Today we're really excited because we're going to be discussing uh, one single book instead of the four like we did last time. It's a lot of work. And that book is My Brilliant Friend by Elena Ferrante, which was published in 2012. We're going to spend the majority of the podcast obviously talking about the book and the characters in it, but we would be remiss if we didn't spend a little bit of time talking about some of the controversy around the author, Elena Ferrante herself. So when we say controversy, the thing that we're discussing is that the author has remained anonymous. Nobody knows Elena Ferrante's true identity. It seems to be a pseudonym. And obviously, as a very popular and accomplished and acclaimed author, people want to know as much about her as they can. So her choice to remain anonymous has sparked a lot of controversy and debate. And the thing we want to talk about specifically is there was an Italian journalist named Claudio Gatti, Gatti who did a deep investigation to try to figure out Ferrante's identity. And 
In an article in The New Yorker, he claims that Elena Ferrante is actually a woman named Anita Raja, who's a translator from Rome. The reason why he thinks that Elena Ferrante is Anita Raja is because he traced payments made by the publishing house that puts out her work, and he noticed a really huge increase in the payments from the publishing house to her right in, along the same timeline that the books were published. So he thinks that the payments made from the publishing house to Anita Raja is evidence that Anita Raja is Elena Ferrante. One of the things that people don't like about this claim, in addition to questions about the ethics of it all, is that if Anita Raja is Elena Ferrante, it means that her background doesn't really align with what happens in the book. We'll discuss how detailed and vivid the book is. People are under the impression that in order for her to have written such a detailed and accurate representation of life in Naples at that time, she would have had to have lived there and lived through those experiences. But if Gotti is right and Anita Raja is Elena Ferrante, then that means that's not the case. So one question I want to ask you, Ivan, because we, I don't want to spend too much time on whether or not Ferrante is who Gotti says she is. Do you think investigating the identity of someone who would clearly rather remain anonymous is ethical? Like, would you seek her identity out if you were paid to do it or not? I definitely would not be the one completing this task. I think the task of revealing somebody's identity who wishes to remain anonymous is pretty unethical. Uh, though, as you'll come to find out, what's unethical is not necessarily illegal. I think this is an interesting question, though, for various reasons. I think that as Americans, we sort of uh, have an expectation of privacy in our daily lives. And that sort of gets complicated when you consider, you know, celebrity status and public figure status. That's something that, you know, kind of complicates this situation where Lana Ferrante is trying to remain private, but she's also somebody that's kind of being thrust into the public sphere, if you will, due to the the commanding uh, nature of her work. I mean, she's written several very inspiring novels, and due to the novel's praise and influence, I think she'd be closer to celebrity status. And of course, a celebrity or a public figure like Barack Obama or Brad Pitt will have less privacy than someone like yourself and I. And that's sort of the price that comes with the territory. And obviously Ferrante isn't an American citizen, but I think that we as American speakers and readers like to think about it in that light, like what is a human entitled to? For me, the question I ask myself is, will knowing her identity enrich the work in any way? And I think that it's possible that it would because an author's biography can sometimes shed light on the words on the page. So, for example, knowing Dostoevsky's background and some of his issues and legal uh, struggles shines a light on the ending of Crime and Punishment. But in my heart, I believe someday we're going to know who Elena Ferrante is. I think maybe after she's passed, we're going to get all that information. And I'm just not that sure that it's going to change anything about the book. I think the work is what matters to me, and I think that what she put on the page is more than sufficient. To ask you a similar question, but a little bit different, if you, I know you have aspirations to write, we both do, if you found the success that Ferrante found, do you think you would want your identity to be a mystery? Do you think you would be out in public doing interviews? Um, would you take the McCarthy, the Cormac McCarthy route, where it's everybody knows who you are, but you just don't speak? W what kind of balance do you think you would strike? I think I would try to find somewhere in the middle. I wouldn't be a total recluse like somebody like McCarthy or even somebody like Pynchon, who's 
I don't. He's made maybe one public appearance, and it's been debated whether or not it well, was they actually had to him. track him. Yeah. yeah, it was like a Nobel Peace, uh, Nobel Peace Prize, right? That he. I don't know. He didn't. He won an award one time, and he sent a comedian in his place. That's pretty hysterical. I think I would probably try to find a good balance between Elena and McCarthy. I think it's a really challenging task to try to find anonymity with how interconnected our world is and how much technology is influencing us. It's too difficult of a task. I think I would say even damn near impossible. I think I would try to do, like if Pynchon is on one side with Ferrante, like the totally anonymous, and then you have somebody who's like really out in public talking every chance they get, I think I would try to be somewhere in the middle, like McCarthy, where you know who I was, but I would be very selective about or who I am, but I would be rather selective about which interviews I did. Or like McCarthy did certain interviews, but rarely. I think I would like to be in Certainly. that. So um, again, we have a little bit of groundwork we need to do before we get into the book. We wanted to talk about who she is. Now I want to give a brief summary that I wrote about the book, just in case people haven't read it, they can kind of be on the same page. My Brilliant Friend, the first of four books in Elena Ferrante's highly acclaimed Neapolitan Quartet, introduces readers to one of the most memorable and powerful friendships in fiction, Elena and Lila. The friendship, which spans over 60 years throughout the four novels, begins with the two characters as young girls growing up in Naples. The girls, simultaneously similar and wholly different, experience the highs and lows of childhood and young adulthood throughout the course of the book. The development of the girls, as well as the development of their intense bond, comes to reveal an almost encyclopedic understanding of history, philosophy, politics, and human nature. Now, I think in order to really understand this book and do it justice, people need to have a baseline understanding of some of the historical circumstances surrounding the book, because I think those circumstances kind of illuminate the plot and characters' motivations. So, Ivan, do you think you could give like a quick run-through of Italian history? Sure, I am happy to. All right, friends, what you need to know about Italian history is that it's always been very fragmented between the North and the South. In fact, Italy does not even become a unified country until around the late 1860s with the North and South finally coming together. During this time, Italy becomes a kingdom. Leading up to World War I, there is a great deal of back and forth between who Italy will join during the war, and this is something that will describe Italy's foreign policy for years to come, as many of their foreign policy decisions are based on which side offers them the most amount of land in return for their participation. Ultimately, they decide to back the French and the British. What was the impact of World War I on Italy? How did their involvement in the war sort of shape their future moving forward? I'm glad that you asked because following World War I, despite being on the winning side of the war, Italy goes through serious economic hardships likely caused by the debt that they had taken on during the war, but also caused by uncontrollable inflation and unemployment. Can you talk to us a little bit about the labor conditions in Italy? Um, usually when there's some sort of ideological overtaking or overthrow, labor conditions are unstable. We see that um, globally. Was that the case in Italy? I'm glad that you asked this as well because labor actually becomes a central tenet or a central idea that reunifies Italy later on after World War II during a 1946 referendum. But after World War I, Italy is essentially led by major labor movements that are 
like for the most part ideologically driven by communists and socialists and some of those people are actually mentioned in the book uh, but beginning in 1919 there's these big labor strikes happening throughout italy that are inspired by labor strikes going on in places like russia where strikers are demanding better work conditions and better wages um, but with the economic conditions of italy coupled with the civil unrest caused in part by the labor strikes a scary new tale unfolds and that is the beginning of fascism Led by the rhetoric of Benito Mussolini, he gathers a group of militants known as the Black Shirts to essentially wreak havoc on the country. Mussolini uses the Black Shirts to intimidate and attack political opponents, particularly left-wing and socialist groups. They engage in violent confrontations with labor unions, socialist organizations, and other political opponents, all contributing to the destabilization of Italy's political landscape. At the proverbial peak of this chaos, Mussolini leads an insurrection in Rome in 1922, which will be coined the March on Rome. This is essentially where the king gave power to Mussolini. Okay, so we've talked about the impact of World War I on Italy. What about World War II? What kind of impact did that have? World War II pretty much brings Italy to its knees. It's pretty clear early on that Italy was not ready to join World War II, but had to do so under political pressure. As many of you know, Italy initially joins the war on the side of the Axis powers of Germany and Japan. And during this time, Italy's military efforts can be summed up in one word, disastrous. In the span of three years, the Italian military suffers amazing defeats both across Europe and across the territories in Africa. In one example, Mussolini sent some 250,000 troops to help Germany in their failed invasion of Russia, and almost 85,000 of those troops died. Back at home, the material conditions for Italian citizens are severely diminished. The Italian economy cannot keep up, as dozens of their major factories in northern Italy are bombed by the Allies, and hundreds of thousands of people leave the country in order to escape persecution. At this time, Italy's also dealing with massive food shortages that are devastating the country. The economic and military devastation of the war hits Mussolini at home pretty hard. He is actually overthrown by his own council in July of 1943 after losing Sicily to the Allies. And on September 8th of that same year, a new prime minister signs an armistice with the Allies, which makes Italy actually switch sides during the war. This armistice also divides Italy in two again, between the northern fascist Italy and the southern kingdom of Italy that is allied with the western powers. Now, this book takes place specifically in Naples. What can you tell us about Naples that could maybe shed some light on the book? Um, the setting is really important in this book, so what was going on? So during this time, Naples is by far the most heavily bombed city in Italy by the Allies due to its strategic location in what's known as the Mezzogiorno or the South. It is estimated that the relentless attacks by the Allies on Naples resulted in the deaths of at least 30,000 Neapolitans. It's important to note that during this time, there is also some 20,000 or so Germans occupying Naples and the surrounding area because after the September 8th armistice is signed, one Italian general in Naples flees the city but not before signing a decree to hand over Naples to the Nazis. This pisses off a lot of Neapolitans because they really bring it to their Nazi occupiers and between September 27th and October 1st, Naples is freed from German occupation with the help of the Allies. 
Now, interestingly enough, Elena and Lila, according to my math, are born in 1944. So they're essentially born just following all the crazy stuff going on in Naples during that time and at least a whole year before World War II is officially over. So think about it. Elena and Lila essentially grow up in a war-torn Italy that is poor and still trying to figure out its identity after the war under a plethora of outside influences. Some of those influences, of course, being the United States, but also the Soviet Union. Hopefully now you know a little bit more about what's going on in Italy during this time. So Troy, let's get back into it. What do you think about the beginning of the book? I think that the beginning of the book is not only really engaging, I think it sets the tone for everything that happens later on. So just to give you kind of the premise of what happens in the first chapter, the very first paragraph says, This morning, Reno telephoned. I thought he wanted money again, and I was ready to say no, but that was not the reason for the phone call. His mother was gone. So, the book starts and opens with a mystery. Elena, who's the narrator of the book, receives a call from Lila. Some people might pronounce it Lila. My guess is that we're going to just go with Lila for the most part. Lila's son, Reno, um, letting her know that Lila, who's one of Elena's very best friends, probably the most important person in her life, has disappeared. What I think is interesting and what I didn't pick up on the first time I read the book but that I noticed this time is the book actually makes use of some elements of the mystery genre. Um, I'm not suggesting that this is a John Grisham type book, but it's clearly literary fiction. But I do think she takes some elements of the mystery genre techniques and uses them to propel the story forward and to hook readers in. In addition to making use of some elements of the mystery genre to hook readers in, I think that the introduction is important because it sort of sets the tone for the relationship between Lila and Elena. I do want to go back into the text a little bit and read something that Elena writes. She says, Reno's mother is named Rafaela Cerullo, but everyone has always called her Lena, not me. I've never used either her first name or her last to me, for more than 60 years, she's been Lila. If I were to call her Lena or Rafaela suddenly like that, she would think our friendship was over. It's been at least three decades since she told me that she wanted to disappear without leaving a trace, and I'm the only one who knows what she means. She never had in mind any sort of flight, a change of identity, the dream of making a new life somewhere else. And she never thought of suicide, repulsed by the idea that Rena would have anything to do with her body, and be forced to attend to the details. She meant something different. She wanted to vanish. She wanted every one of her cells to disappear, nothing of her ever to be found. And since I know her well, or at least I think I know her, I take it for granted that she has found a way to disappear, to leave not so much as a hair anywhere in this world. So this sets the stage for their relationship. Elena thinks she understands that her best friend Lila has disappeared and is gone for good. What's interesting about this is even though she clearly states here that this is something that Lila wants, Elena gets angry about it. When Reno confirms that everything is gone from Lila's apartment, all her clothes, all her materials, Elena says, I hung up and when, she, when he called back, I didn't answer. I sat down at my desk. 
Elila is overdoing it as usual, I thought. She was expanding the concept of trace out of all proportions. She wanted not only to disappear herself now at the age of 66, but also to eliminate the entire life that she had left behind. I was really angry. We'll see who wins this time, I said to myself. I turned on the computer and began to write. All the details of our story, everything that still remained in my memory. So, just to reiterate, we have a character, Lila, who wants to disappear and who seems to have succeeded in doing so. And we have her best friend from childhood, Elena, frustrated by this situation, who sets out on a goal or on the journey of recreating she and Lila's story. And as you can tell from the we'll see who wins this time, the relationship between them, though there is love there and it is powerful, it's not all sunshine and roses. And this book and the three that follow trace that. One of the interesting parts of the introduction as well is how clueless Leela's son is. Uh, in the beginning, when she first disappears, uh, Reno calls up uh, Lenu, just like Troy described, and Elena, sorry. Elena and Lenu are the same. Yeah, they're the same person. But yeah, he calls up uh, Lena and he's like, hey, my mom's gone. <laughs> Where'd she go? And she's like, oh, would you try, like, is, did you try looking for, like, around to see if she, like, maybe she left anything? And, you know, he goes and looks into the house and everything's gone. And then he's like, oh, my God, we got robbed. That was a funny uh, funny part because, you know, he's completely clueless as to what's going on. I think it highlights the closeness, though, between Elena and Lila because this is Lila's own son, Reno. And he just he has no idea what's going on because he doesn't understand his mother's motivations and emotions. But Elena, who's been there from the very beginning, does so. This is a book about a friendship and a very close relationship, and this establishes that early on. Yeah, and it's a reminder that our friends can hurt us, and, you know, sometimes we hurt our friends. I'll never disappear like that. Don't worry. <laughs> All right. So this book is really great because kind of like a Dostoevsky novel or a Tolstoy novel, there's a cast of really interesting characters. But we've just said that there are two central characters. There's Elena Greco and Lila Cerullo. Rather than give you a sort of spark notes summary or profile of each character, we thought we would sort of approach it in a different way. The beginning of the book, I would say the first hundred pages or so, is very anecdotal. It talks about a lot of different moments from their childhood. Ivan and I are each going to pick a moment that reveals or indirectly characterizes either Lila or Elena, and we're going to discuss what happens in the book and what it reveals about them and their personalities, and we'll use that to sort of propel us forward. So I think I'm going to start, and I am going to discuss a moment in the book that reveals something about Elena and Lila. Most of the anecdotes in this story reveal something about both, but I'm going to focus on what it reveals about Elena. Um, and the reason why I'm going first rather than Ivan is because, one, Elena's the narrator, and two, and even more importantly, it comes first in the book. So one of the central moments in this book, and frankly the whole series, all four books as a whole, is there was a time when Elena and Lila were children when they would play together. And at first they would sort of just play with their dolls, Nina and Two, kind of in proximity to each other on like other sides of the park. But gradually as time went on, they sort of got closer and closer, almost as if drawn by some kind of magnetic force, which is actually really indicative of their friendship moving forward. But in one particular instance, they're sitting on either side of kind of like a metal grate that goes into a cellar 
and they exchange dolls. So Elena gives Lila her doll, Lila gives Elena her doll, and Lila, for reasons unknown, or at least unknown to me, decides to throw Elena's doll down through the grates into the cellar. And so Elena throws her doll down. Now, that in and of itself is kind of essential because it sets the tone for the relationship between the two. I don't want to say that Elena's a follower in a pejorative or negative sense, but I think Ivan would agree that in this book, Lila acts and Elena reacts. Her movements are a reaction to Lila's. So Lila throws the doll down, and of course Elena's going to follow. Now, they could leave the dolls, but neither of them wants to. So they decide to go down and try to find the dolls. This is where it gets kind of interesting. There's a character in the book called Don Achille who almost isn't human. He's kind of a lone shark in the town, and the town lives in fear of him. But he's not just some big brute. He almost takes on a mythical kind of boogeyman quality. And so the cellar grate that they threw the dolls down into is sort of below his apartment, as I understand it. And so they go down, they try to find the dolls, and they can't. Lila says... Don Achille took him. He put him in his bag, and he he took him back up to his apartment. So they decide, Lila decides, that they're going to go up to the apartment and get the dolls back. They're in the dark. The setting is very spooky. It kind of evokes a, a scary, spooky mood in readers. Lila takes Elena's hand and drags her up the stairs. Not drags her, but kind of guides her up the stairs. They knock on the door, and they talk to Don Achille finally, they sort of confront the demon monster that nobody, even the grown men and women in the town, want to confront. And he gives them money to go get new dolls. He says that he doesn't have their dolls. The reason why I picked this scene is I think that it foreshadows their relationship in the sense that Lila leads and Elena follows. Elena draws strength from Lila. Lila is much more stubborn, I would say, of the two. Lila's desire to push against conventions and boundaries and restrictions like nobody in the town would confront Don Achille but she's willing to do that and I think that foreshadows that element of her personality and then also Elena's sort of awestruck nature of her so do you have anything you want to add about that scene it's 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 pivotal it really is I would say that scene is also indicative of uh, kind of like the future ways in which Elena gets this sense of power, like almost like she's like unafraid of like doing certain things. She uses the image of Lila to draw strength in a time when she might not have any of her own. Lila's a model of strength for her, I think. And she even later on in the book, towards the very end, starts to write things and she finds her words kind of mimicking the things Lila says. So The moment that I want to talk about, it's interesting because it also highlights a lot about Lila as well. And as you'll recall, Troy saying earlier, this book really is given from the perspective of Elena, who we have to trust early on and throughout the whole book. Sometimes this can become difficult as a character. We'll sometimes do an action that you know might not necessarily be good or bad but the intention behind it is revealed through the narrator's comments and that's one of the i guess one of the frustrating parts of the book is um you know sometimes lila will do something and elena will be like oh this was malicious and don't get me wrong a lot of the times they are but i think that sometimes the characters even when they're even when elena's not present in the story and she's retelling somebody else's story the motivations might not be entirely clear uh, but Elena th uh, seems to think that they are. In this specific instance, 
the characters Lila and Elena have just finished elementary school and the option of going to middle school is presented to them. You know, we're very privileged here in this country where, you know, a student would go to middle school, right? Because uh, that's the given, right? But in war-torn Italy, this is not the material reality. And so parents have an additional consideration that they have to think about if they want to send their kids to school or not. For Lila, for example, like her dad thinks that she can, she's going to be a better use to like, work at the shoe shop with the with the family and for elena sort of the same thing like her mom thinks that she would be better like off working instead of going to school and so lila and elena as we're told up to this point are both very smart and you know clearly deserve to you know move on in their education just due to their academic rigor but i would say that elena definitely looks up to lila and her academic achievements i think it's pretty clear that lila is the smarter one do you think it's fair to say that Lila seems to be the more naturally gifted one? She teaches herself how to read and write. Oh, absolutely. Because, I mean, Elena, like, you, throughout the certain chapters of the book, you see how much she struggles with, like, you know, I mean, she really works hard for, like, her education, whereas Lila sort of seems to come naturally, even, like, when she's writing letters and stuff. Elena earns everything through her hard work. Lila just sort of, she has that extra gear that some Yeah, she's have. sort of like a, a child prodigy, if you will. Um, that's a good way to describe her. So... Going back to the story, they both get presented the option of going to middle school, but only Elena's parents allow her to go. This is after a lot of discussion between the mother and the father of whether or not it would be useful for her to go. Lila, on the other hand, her parents decide this is not going to be it. This is not going to be for them. So they tell Lila that she can't go and Lila, uh, you know, kind of being rebellious in nature, like insists that she has to go. And at one point, like she insists so much that her father actually throws her out of the window, which, you know, is clearly a cruel and unusual punishment for, you know, asking to go to school. So at this point, Lila convinces Elena to go to the beach with her. Even though neither child at this point has ever left the neighborhood, Lila seems to think that she knows how to get there. So she convinces her to go with her and Lila conjures up this pretty elaborate plan to sort of decoy their movements as to whether they're actually going. She tells Elena to tell her parents that they'll actually be at the teacher's uh, end of the year party and they can sort of use this as cover for, you know, going to the beach. So she convinces her to do this and at some point in the story, you know, they're walking down this uh, this tunnel to get to the street, uh, to get to the beach, and Lila is pretty scared, and she has no idea where she's going. At some point, it even seems as though they've lost track of time, and this upsets Lila, and she immediately becomes scared and, you know, realizes that they need to turn around and go back to the neighborhood. Elena is uh, clearly not wanting to go back to the neighborhood because they've spent all this time already, and, they're, and she's basically like, why would I turn back? You know, if I'm going to get in trouble, I might as well at least see the beach. Eventually, Lila does convince Elena to turn around with her. And when they get back to the neighborhood, Elena's mother is waiting for her. Her mother figuring out very quickly that there was no end of the year party at the teacher's house. And, you know, she gets home and she gets punished physically. I think Lila does as well. Either the next day or sometime later on, Lila uh, asks Elena what her parents did to her as punishment, and Elena says that they hit her, and this sort of takes uh, Lila by surprise. She says, all they did was hit you, and, you know, Elena is sort of confused by this question and asks, what should they have done? And Lila says, they're still sending you to school to learn Latin. At the end of the chapter, the narrator asks the reader the question, did Lila really set me up? Did she set up this whole elaborate plot just to get me in trouble? And while as a reader, you sort of have to make a decision on it, I would probably say that it seems as though she got set up for sure. So 
we've got this situation where Lila thinks she's going to be able to put her friend who is being privileged in some way because she's going to be allowed to continue on with her education and Lila's not. She's going to try to sabotage that, yeah. essentially. <laughs> and the scene is really cool because it starts to rain on them, and Elena kind of sees, sees it as sort of a freeing, and Lila's pulling back, which is interesting because it's the exact opposite of what happened in the scene that I chose, the seller. In that situation, Lila was encouraging Elena to face her fears. So when you first read it, you're shocked by it because you're like, Lila's scared? Lila's not the scared one. Elena's the one who gets scared. But then you realize, okay, she was never scared at all. She just wanted to sabotage her friends. So, so I think in the book, it does say that she is fearful based on Elena's account. Why do you think she would be fearful? Because I didn't make the connection that you made that maybe it seems like she wasn't fearful at all. I didn't really make that. So why would she be fearful in this scenario, do you think? So there are two possibilities. The first possibility is that she was never scared at all, and she just was timing it so that they would get back on time. The second possibility is that Lila really is scared of leaving the sort of comforts of Naples. Both characters in the whole series travel a little bit, but in books two, three, and four, Lila stays very much rooted in Naples, and Elena travels and lives in other countries and other cities. So Elena's much more kind of cosmopolitan, and Lila stays rooted. Um, and maybe there's something to be said for the fact that Lila feels like she has sort of power over that domain. I mean, in this town, even as a young girl, she seems like kind of the center of gravity of the town almost. There's something about her. So one of those two possibilities, maybe a little bit of both. And I want to tie this back a little bit to our conversation about history because, as I mentioned, Italy is very poor during this time, and this is one of the few scenes where this is really illustrated. We're told pretty early on in the story that the neighborhood that Lila and Elena live in is very poor, and interestingly enough, the next neighborhood over, the one that they encounter as they are traveling to the beach is also very poor. And many of the same uh, issues that they are dealing with in uh, Lila and Elena's neighborhood, they're also seeing in this neighborhood as well. And it's interesting because uh, there's also mentions of like a decommissioned tank that is just lying there somewhere. So I think it's an interesting point in the story that has a very interesting uh, historical marker as well. So now we have a sort of a baseline understanding of each character's personality. We have Lila, naturally gifted, talented, rebellious, uh, strong, mean-spirited, potentially jealous, held back. We have Elena, who uh, I don't think it would be unfair to say she's a little more wholesome, maybe. More reserved. More reserved, hardworking. Um, insecure. Insecure, for sure. Especially in this book. I don't know. I haven't read the other three. Yeah, we maybe we should say that is this we've each read this book twice and then I've read the other three and you haven't yet, which is actually good because I think in future episodes we'll do the other ones and that will give us an opportunity to kind of um come at it from different angles. So we have our baseline understanding of the two characters. Rather than walk through the major scenes in the book in sort of a plot summary kind of way, I mean, you can go on Spark Notes or Lit Charts or something if you want that. What I think we are going to do is talk about some of the major themes or lessons in the book, and that will give us an opportunity to, to discuss scenes because scenes develop themes. So since you already started talking about um, the elementary school to middle school transition and Elena is allowed to continue and Lila is not – I think we should talk about education as a theme. 
Um, to me in the book, education is sort of a means of escape or advancement, right? Which is normal. We, th- we think about that, like the more educated you are, the more opportunities you're going to have. But what commentary I think this book makes on education that's different and makes it less simplistic is that education is insufficient. Um, Elena uses education and she travels that channel and pathway and she does improve her life. But Lila exists outside of the educational hierarchy in the book. She is not allowed to continue. She doesn't have any formal education beyond elementary school. But She's still clearly the smartest in the town. Her achievements, which are numerous throughout all the books, refute the idea that you need an education to be successful because she outshines everyone. So it's sort of a double-edged sword, I think, which is that, yes, education can be used to escape or advance, but it's also just a social construct that people can exist outside of because Lila does so. There's never one moment in this book that you think Elena is smarter than lila or more competent than lila i i don't think. i don't think yeah it's not presented that way um there is one scene where i, I kind of uh doubted that uh, elena gets an opportunity to write for an editorial an argue a summary of an argument that she had with the religion teacher so elena writes her piece but before she submits it to the editor she gives it to lila to edit it lila does uh starts crossing out all these things and starts rearranging paragraphs and hands it back to her and, and elena reads it and she's like shocked this is like the best thing she's ever read and by comparison she thinks that her own writing is subpar compared to lila but keep in mind lila has not finished uh elementary school so and at this point i think they're in high school so in that instance i thought it was a little bit hard to believe that lila would write better than elena or that she would even have like a stronger grasp of the language than she would just considering how much further in her education elena has gotten but you know i think that may be up for debate Well, what's interesting about it though is yes she has a more formal education but it's noted in the book that lila doesn't stop learning she she's an autodidact she teaches herself all the things for a while that elena learns in school there's a scene when they go to the library and there's like an award given out for like who's checked out the most books and the people that have checked out the most books are uh, Lila, her brother, her mother, and her dad. Her mother, brother, and dad don't read at all. So it's clear to everybody that Lila has checked out all the books and read them herself. So um, what's interesting about that letter though is it's supposed to get published. It doesn't end up getting published. So then you could argue like, is Lila as smart as Elena is framing her, or is this just someone who's in awe of her brilliant friend? Yeah. Um, but I think we have enough confirmation from other characters that Elena, or I'm sorry, that Lila's unique that we can believe it. But again, commentary on education because Lila's an autodidact. Elena's, Elena needs somebody else teaching her. She the most motivated she is in school is when she and Lila are learning the same things and Lila's helping her study and review. Yeah, especially with like the I think at one point she's learning Greek and Lila ha- Lila's already read like all the stuff that she's supposed to read and then she also goes out of her way to teach her. You think genius is an appropriate word for Lila? I would yeah. say prodigy. I don't really know about genius. Um I just I don't know if I would ever really use that word to be honest with you. Yeah. 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 Do you have any other thoughts about the education scene? Are there any other moments in the book that sort of really reinforce it? Um, Elena really comes – I mean we're kind of 
downplaying Elena here. Like she's very smart. Yeah, she's very smart and very hardworking. It's like that age-old saying. What is it? What is that saying, Troy? Uh, hard work beats talent when talent fails to work hard. So one of the things uh, about education, and you've already sort of mentioned this, is uh, you might not necessarily need it to kind of get ahead. Um, in this instance, though, I think that Elena clearly has like a better lifestyle because of her education, something that Lila has to sort of uh, get through her marriage of somebody that's like a little bit more wealthy, whereas Elena sort of, you know, wants to create that for herself. I think that's, it just opens up more opportunities for her where it didn't for Lila, so. And the, the city and the townspeople view Elena and Lila very differently. Like, we'll probably talk more about this at the end. Lila's viewed with a lot of hostility. Um, whereas Elena gets job opportunities because I trust you, Lanu, the one woman says, and she's allowed to babysit her kids. So Elena's uh, education sort of reforms or polishes her public persona. Yeah, and also I think Lila's uh, lack of education is also sort of a tragedy in the beginning because she clearly wants to go to school and she wants to learn more, but it's just the economic circumstances that don't allow her to. And also, I mean, the parental circumstances, too. They would rather see her in, you know, in manual labor than actually in school. So um, it's a bit of a tragedy, I would say. Yeah. And what do you make? I mean, so Elena and Lila are not in that different circumstances materially, but Elena's parents let her go and Lila's don't. What do you make of that? Is that just Elena got luckier with more kind parents is i think so i think that's a, that's a good way to describe it i think especially because uh elena never really describes she describes her father as sort of like a timid person i think that um he clearly loves his daughter very much he's kind of a complainer like oh we got to go get the money but he does it whereas like like you said earlier lila's dad throws her out the window and breaks her arm i will say one additional thing with her dad as well is that he's a city porter so i think he might see what an education would do for mm. you compared to you know uh Lila's dad who works at a shoe shop yes and that's that's a good point I had not thought about that at all again we have Elena and her family that is a little more open to a life outside Naples and we have Lila and her family who's very much like she's one of these people that's just not going to leave like and that's fine but I think that maybe that influenced the decisions moving on about and one of the books in the series is called those who leave and those who stay you know, uh, Lila stays <laughs> and Elena leaves. You yeah, know what it's I mean? a good foreshadow into into what happens. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's interesting too because as I pointed out um, earlier, you know, they don't actually like. There's never a time when they officially leave the neighborhood up until the point where they're almost like done with elementary school, which is crazy. I mean, they haven't even left that neighborhood. I know. I mean, it would be like you're uh, like a couple city blocks. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know exactly the distance, but like very isolated. Um, but it's interesting to me that even as small as it is, it comments on global issues. That's what I love about this book, and I'll just say it now. I was going to say it at some point. The book is about the friendship between Elena and Lila. That is the heartbeat of the book. But through that friendship, we learn about so much more. We learn about feminism, politics, history, violence, classism, like their friendship is a springboard for every other conversation. So I would call it an encyclopedic novel because it covers so – or maybe not this novel, although probably this one, but the books as a whole because it covers so much ground. But it's not encyclopedic in the way that Infinite Jest is or Gravity's Rainbow is. It's clear that those two authors, and I like them both, set out to write a book to like 
show everybody what they know. Like they wanted a broad book and the characters serve the purpose of showing what they know about all these things. All those things in this book, those things being politics, history, science, math, all fall into place because of the characters. The characters, the heartbeat, not the author's brain. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that you mentioned Infinite Jest where I think that in that book, it's so it's a little bit more show offy. Like let me let me show you how much I know. Whereas, like you said, yeah, in this book, it's a lot more about like the the way that history affects the characters and how the characters sort of respond to their um, their outside stimulus. There's I like Infinite Jest and I like Gravity's Rainbow, but for me, I just I sort of like this, yeah, I where she's she's she being Elena Ferrante isn't beating us over the head with like look how smart I am but then when you read the book you're like wow that person's a genius yeah I mean when you think about it too I mean the length of the four novels is probably about the length of it is I think it's about 1600 pages so it's a little bit longer even although the print in this book is much bigger I mean if you've looked at Infinite Jest the print is small the pages are huge you know, going back to education, I actually think this is one a book that uh, doesn't even try to like read hard. Like it's not like a no. it's not like a book that you need a, a solid education to be able to read. I mean, this is a it reads very it flows very well. I mean, it's written entirely in first person. Um, but I I mean, it's you can get it. Like even if you have, I mean, I don't know what kind of reading level this is based on uh, the past episode when we talked about the Lexile score. It's not that hard to read, though. I mean, it's, it's pretty, not. and it's very entertaining, too. It's accessible. What I think is, I I was listening to a podcast one time, and the person was talking about Shakespeare. The guy's name was Peter Joseph, but he was taking a quote from someone else. So anyway, he said, Shakespeare will meet you wherever you are. Like, whatever level you can read him at, he'll be there. If you can go deeper, if you're smart enough, Shakespeare will meet you there. I feel like Ferrante's the same way. Like, if you're a casual reader and you just want to read a story about little drama, a little violence, some romance, a, a friendship that gets torn apart and put back together and torn apart, then you can do that. And you can read it like that and not look for any of the deeper meaning and still walk away a, a pretty happy, I would guess. But then if you want to dive deeper, it she will meet you there. Oh, yeah. The first time around, I definitely read it more casually. And then the second time around, I'm like, okay, I need to understand Italian history to understand what's going on in this. And I got a little nervous because – I, I I don't think there's been a book other than Blood Meridian that I've like put pushed on you as strongly as this one. I was like, you have to read this book, and I immediately I kind of think of about them all four of them as one because I think that's sort of how they were intended. But the four together is like one of the two or three best things I've ever read. So I was a little worried reading it again. I'm like, I hope it holds up. I hope it holds up because sometimes you reread a book and it doesn't, but this one did. Yeah. But going back to what you said about the simplicity of it, I mean. One of the lines says, My friendship with Lila began the day we decided to go up the dark stairs that led step after step, flight after flight, to the door of Don Achilles' apartment. Like, this is not the opening of Blood Meridian, see the child, he is pale and thin, he stokes the scullery (laughs) fire. I mean, or it's not uh, the opening to As I Lay Dying, where you see Jules' head floating up above Darl's. This is simple, this is accessible. And I think that uh, that maybe speaks to uh, the authenticity of where she comes from. Um, I think that it's you know it's it's always better to say less and say more. And I think that even though she has these four books, like they're yeah, like Troy said, they're extremely accessible. So I think that just kind of reflects on the education aspect. It makes you wonder what a person like Cormac McCarthy would think about this. 
I wish I, we knew. <laughs> I, wish. I don't know because on the one hand, stylistically, it's so different than what he does. But on the other hand, he said his one criteria about books that he likes is uh, they have to be about life and death. They have to be about serious matters. He didn't like Henry James or Proust because he felt like they didn't deal with serious things. He thought they dealt with kind of the froofy parts of life. This is a book about life and death for and violence for sure. It's very violent. Not in the same way his books are violent, but that's just because he stylizes it more. The violence of it is also a very like uh, a social violence, right? Because uh, a lot of like all this, all the characters for the most part are violent, and it's uh, because of their external conditions. Um, whereas in like Cormac McCarthy, like all the violent characters almost seem supernatural, like mm-hmm. to some extent. Um, so very different, obviously, but this is also a very human book. I mean, it's a, like we said, it's a book about friendship. So, um, you know, it's a book about distrust. It's also a book about betrayal. I mean, when things happen in this book and the subsequent ones, you feel sad about it. Like if Elaine and Lila are not talking for a particular period, like, come on, you know, cause you just don't want to see that. And I think that's what makes the beginning, which is also the end, where she leaves, kind of sad, you know? But you just hope that things change by the end. Now that we've discussed education, we're going to move on to gender dynamics. Uh, This is a book clearly written about two young girls that live in a patriarchal society. And through this patriarchal society, they sort of have to create their own identities. And they do so in different ways where Elena confronts the patriarchy indirectly by doing things like going to school. I think that a character like Lila confronts it more directly in the way that she, you know, steps up to people whenever they mess with her uh, or like even, you know, even pulls out a knife on a guy one time for uh, the way that she talked to her friend. I think that they deal with the patriarchy in very different ways. Troy, what do you think? This book doesn't say that gender dynamics are imagined or made up. There are gender norms and constraints that have a tangible impact on these people. Lila is thrown out the window by her dad, and it's okay. Nobody cares about it in the book. Everybody's like, yeah, she deserved it. She's a troublemaker. Um, So how can you sit and say that gender dynamics are made up when she's got a broken arm that proves that they're not made up? Um, Ada, Ada, their female uh, peer, she's abused by the Solaris brothers. She's pulled into the car. The Solaris brothers are kind of like... They're kind of like... They're almost like the boogeyman in the way that Donna Keeley is, but um, they're just like a crime family. They're kind of like the mafia They are the mafia, yeah. Um, They have their family. The Solaris family has all the money in the town. They run everything. They drive around in fancy vehicles. They feel entitled to everything and they just drag the young girl into the car trigger warning and we don't know what happens but we can guess what happens um so you can't sit here and say that gender dynamics are not in this book like they're clearly in the book but what we have is female characters who are actively pushing against those norms and creating new realities for themselves like ivan said elena's doing it through her education um she thinks i think maybe subconsciously that if she can reach a certain level she's sort of beyond reproach like if she can make her own money then all of a sudden she's not at the behest of the solaris brothers like everybody else lila doesn't do it through formal education she just does it through force of will and her own um ability to enact violence like we tend to think of violence as being only perpetrated by men but 
actually the women are aggressive and violent in this book towards each other. I mean, there's a moment when, um, similar to what happened with Ada, the Solaris brothers are driving by. They are like, come in the car. Elena and Alila come in the car, and they both say, no, no, no. Is it? It's Michelle Marcello. Marcel, one of them grabs her Elena's wrist and breaks the bracelet, and Marcelo gets out of the car to pick it up. And Elena, not Elena, Lila pulls out a knife and like puts it to his throat. And like, if you ever touch her again, you're done here. And so, yeah, I think we've got people redo, uh, living within um, a very patriarchal, violent society, which neither of us, when we say that it exists and we're not supporting it, but like it is, it's in the book. Also, I think we see it from a different perspective because we're more attuned to that stuff now. Like, we know, people are more uh, comfortable challenging the patriarchy and even just talking about the patriarchy. So I think that's the, the big difference between our society and theirs. Um, however, that being said, there's interesting parts in this book where people are willing to overlook some of the, uh, you know, I guess the symptoms of the patriarchy. The example of Lila getting thrown out the window, as you mentioned earlier, that's a good example. People were just kind of willing to overlook that or, and almost making it seem as though Lila could have deserved that sort of treatment. I wonder if this, as we're discussing this gender dynamic theme, it's a good opportunity for us to talk about um, Elena and Lila in particular's relationship trajectory because like Lila's proposals and everything are, are related. So Lila is a slower bloomer, right? She's described that she hits puberty later than Elena. That's one way that they sort of diverge is Elena sort of grows into womanhood earlier. Um, Elena also has like more love interest before before uh, uh, Lila does. Yeah, I think Elena's kind of, she's a little more dreamy about th like boys and she wants to talk about that and Lila's a little more like whatever, I don't care. What ends up happening, though, is Marcelo Solaris becomes really interested in Lila, and he's, like, the richest guy in town. Like, he is the guy that everybody would want their daughter to be with because with him, all your money troubles go away. Like, if Lila marries Mar Marcelo, um, all her family's issues go by the wayside. So he becomes very interested in pursuing her. Lila thinks he's disgusting and doesn't want anything to do with him. So there's this period of time when he's courting her and courting her. He's coming over to dinner every night. He buys the family a television set. And Lila locks herself in her room. The dad, the brother, the mom are like, What is wrong with you? Like, what is wrong with you? This is what you want. But not, not Lila. Um, Elena's relationship history is a little bit different. She has a brief little relationship with a guy named Gino, who's like the pharmacist's son, and that goes nowhere. And then she is really interested in this guy named Nino Saratori, who's the son of uh, Donato Saratori, and we'll probably have to get into them in more detail. But he's sort of this artsy kind of reclusive figure, and she's interested in him, but she ends up dating Antonio who is very much the worker. He didn't go to school. He takes care of his family. He's like a mechanic. Yeah, so her, I would say Elena's relationship history in this book is a little bit more straightforward. But going back to Lila, Marcelo is pursuing her. She doesn't want any part of it. Ivan, what happens next? Somebody else starts to court her? Interestingly enough, the son of the boogeyman 
uh, Stefano Caracci begins to pursue her. If you'll recall, the boogeyman is uh, Don Achille Caracci. He is the father of Stefano Caracci, who is now pursuing Lila. Don Achille, as you'll recall, takes on sort of a, a mythical uh, status in the book. Um, he is the person that everyone in the neighborhood is afraid of. Um, that's also the person who owns the apartment that Lila throws the dolls into. If you'll recall the story that Troy told earlier on, um, everyone, like I said, everyone's afraid of this guy. So the son of the guy that everyone was afraid of is now pursuing Lila. Although I should, I should say he does get killed. He's murdered. Yeah. He's murdered by one of Lila and Elena's friends, dad. So this is a guy that comes in, you know, pursues her and in a way really saves her from lifelong despair in the sense that, you know, I don't know what kind of life she would have if she had, you know, picked somebody like Marcelo, but it would not be good, I would imagine. Now, what's interesting, I think we need to go back and give even a little more context. So when Lila is told that she's not going to be allowed to continue on with her education, she is going to work in the shoemaking shop or shoe repair shop, I guess, that her father, Fernando, works at or owns with her brother, Reno. So Reno is the name of her brother and her son, which is a little confusing. Lila starts to work in the shop, but she has dreams beyond just being a shoe repair person. What does she start to do, Ivan? She starts to design shoes. She designs shoes. She thinks that they can make their own shoes, the Cerullo brand shoes. She and her brother start to work in secret behind their father's back, designing this pair of, I think, size 42, 43 men's dress shoes. Um, They make a prototype. The dad thinks it's disgusting. He hates it. He's stuck in his ways. He's never going to get out um, of his own way. But the brother and Lila think they have something. Lila kind of gives up on it, whatever, but uh, Reno does not. He is very much on board with this shoe thing. What's interesting is Stefano, Stefano, who is pursuing Lila, who is an alternative to Marcello, likes the shoes. And what does he do with the shoes? He offers them a lot of money to build them, (laughs) like to make them in the shop. To make them. So he purchases the one prototype shoe that Lila and her brother made and designed, and he also buys the shop next to the Cerullo Shoe Repair Store, and he says, hey, I'm going to pay for some employees for you. We're going to get this business up and running, but the one catch is you have to do everything that Lila says. Like, he wants the shoes, like, down to, like, the stitches. Like, he wants everything to be exactly like Lila designed it. Yeah, which, of course, is going to be problematic for Fernando, her father, because... Why would he listen to his young daughter? He's the expert shoemaker, but... Yeah, and I mean, these are like... Like, even Lila herself describes the shoes as being like a child's dream. Like, they probably cannot be built the way that Lila wants them to. But, but Stefano's but... insistent that, that uh, the shoes are made that way. Um, I think that the moment when he decides to buy the shoes is the moment that she sort of falls for him would you agree with that or before that or what what do you think the act of buying the shoes and supporting the family means to her i think that's that's definitely uh true i think that's probably where you see that um but i do want to hone on one more thing because we've already talked about this but it just sucks for lila because because she couldn't chase an education she now has to choose between you know either marrying into the crime family or she marries this other guy who who's like who owns a grocery store right and he's rich too probably not as much but he does have money the grocer is rich i will say there's like all these like 
conspiracies about where they got their money from. Like they think because Don Achille was a loan shark. So what funded the grocery store? He's blood money, and it's like very devastating. Like he takes money from families. It's like uh, speculated in the book. Obviously, you know this is all um, from Elena's perspective. So. We don't know what is true, but we have reason uh, to believe that's true. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and uh, but I mean that those circumstances just suck, though. I mean, like the fact that she has to even choose between either of these two men is, you know, sort of a a tragedy in and of itself. Whereas her dream was to write a novel at some point um, and use that to sort of escape her material reality, but instead, you know, she has to find other means to do that. So I think the shoes. Tell me if you disagree or want to refine it. The shoes become a symbol for her own independence and her identity dis- despite the barriers put on her by her father and mother who have said you're not going to pursue your education so Lila is like okay Lila's an artist she's a creative spirit so this energy she has inside of her is going out in some way or another and she pours it into these shoes which are a refutation of the gender dynamics oh her brother and her dad make shoes she made better shoes or she's got her own idea and when Stefano purchases the shoes and kind of puts her in charge of producing the other shoes. I think that's just validation for her that she's on the right. Do you think she's settled with Stef- uh, Stefano? Like, I mean, because you've read further, but do you think that, like, between those two choices, either way she was going to settle? Under pressure, I should say. She settled under pressure from her father and her family who wants her to, you know, get them out of the situation that they're in. I think she chose the lesser of two evils. But the, uh, she settled, though, right? I yeah, mean, I think so. I mean, when you read in this book, up until the last page, Stefano doesn't seem like, to me anyway, he doesn't seem like such a bad choice. There's some hints that maybe he's a little aggressive, but not really. He, he kind of is that good, wholesome boy. It's noted several times that he um, gives people credit on their groceries and lets them pay at the end of the month. So he seems like a pretty wholesome guy. And when you compare him to Marcelo Solaris, you're like, yeah, go with Stefano here. I would agree with that. Another thing that makes me that... Um you know, corroborates that is also the fact that Stefano was the only person that thought of like getting the neighborhood together, like during the holidays. Like he threw that big party and invited including everybody. the person who murdered his father, uh, the children of the person, Sorry, yeah, 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 the children of the person who murdered his father. So Stefano builds bridges between people, and the Solaris family divides people, so they can divide and conquer. I think. I think that Stefano is clearly the better choice. I will say though, if it was up to Lila. And if her family wasn't in the material condition that they were in, I don't think she would have chosen no. him. And so that's why I definitely think that she's settled. Okay, so Lila agrees to marry Stefano, right? And Stefano's rich. So there's this period of engagement where she's sort of sauntering about town and she's got all the nice clothes and people are je- really jealous of her. They're calling her like a prostitute pretty much and saying she sold herself out for money, which is really not the case at all. It's it's revealed that she's like not intimate with him at all which which is kind of weird to talk about cuz these are very young girls but in the to- in the at the time this was common like i think didn't she get married at 16 that's another thing yeah stefano was like 24 i think during this i mean it's a very very a wide age gap i well. mean we don't look at it as appropriate now at all but i don't think that that's what ferrante was trying to comment on i don't think so i think it was a reality um, I don't think so either. I think that's probably true of a lot of European countries at the time, even maybe till today. I mean, that's probably a thing that happens pretty frequently. I would yes. Say. 
So this they have a wedding eventually. The wedding is this big grand event. A lot of things happen with Elena and her boyfriend at the wedding. At the after party or the reception, it says, Later I had the impression that a gust of wind well really quickly. So she chooses Stefano over Marcello, says hit the road, Jack to Marcello. He's not happy about it, but he's shockingly not violent. Uh, you would think that he would react with violence. There's some threats of violence, but not really. Um, and every, it seems like we've got a little happily ever after here. She, uh, Lila, despite not having her education, is married into money. We're getting ready to go. She has a husband who believed in her and in her ability to exist outside of the gender norms because he supported the shoes. By, by buying the shoes, he empowered her. He believed in her vision. He validated her identity um, as a woman and as a human being. So, it says, Later, I had the impression that a gust of wind had shut the door of the restaurant. In reality, there was no wind or even a banging of doors. There happened only what could have been predicted to happen. Just in time for the cake, for the favors, the very handsome, very well-dressed Solara brothers appeared. They moved through the room, greeting this one and that in their lordly way. Gigliola threw her arms around Michelle's neck and drew him down next to her. Lila, with a sudden flush on her throat and around her eyes, pulled her husband energetically by the arm and said something in his ear. Silvio, who's the father, nodded slightly to his children. Manuela, who's the mother, looked at them with a mother's pride. The singer started uh, Lazarella, modestly imitating Arulio Fiero. Reno, with a friendly smile, invited Marcello to sit down. So this is her brother inviting her once pursuer to sit with him. Marcello sat down, loosened his tie, and crossed his legs. The unpredictable revealed itself only at that point. I saw Lila lose her color, become as pale as when she was a child, whiter than her wedding dress, and her eyes had that sudden contraction that turned them into cracks. She had in front of her a bottle of wine, and I was afraid that her gaze would go through it with a violence that would shatter it, with the wine spraying everywhere. But she wasn't looking at the bottle. She was looking farther away. She was looking at the shoes of Marcello Solara. They were Cerullo shoes for men. Not the model for sale, not the ones with the gilded pin. Marcello had on his feet the shoes bought earlier by Stefano, her husband. It was the pair she had made with Reno, making and unmaking them for months, ruining her hands. That's the end of the book, and that's a crazy ending. What what do you make of it? And then I'll jump in. What what is that? Why is that important that Marcello's wearing the shoes that Stefano bought for her? It's a complete betrayal of everything that we've been led to believe about Stefano's view on Lila. We you know, I do have two additional thoughts on this. So the first one is that Lila, first off, she begged Stefano not to let any of the Solaras come to the wedding. Um, and I think that she might have given some um, compromise as to, uh, you know, because of, of the father um, and the mother, because I think that Stefano did some business dealings with them. And, you know, it's it was kind of impossible to not invite them. Um, the second thing, though, is that at some point, I think that there is um, some financial hardship that is caused because of um, the Cerullo shoe shop. Why are you saying worse financial position because of the investment in the shoes? Because we're not making okay. any money at this point. So I'm only speculating as to why he would sell the shoes to the to the Solaras. But 
it's just a complete betrayal of everything we've been told about him and you know this is like her whole life right like this is she couldn't escape poverty through her own means of um of like you know her creativity her all of her creativity was in these pair of shoes and you know it's it's almost like her dream just got completely sold yeah so this whole time you have marcello who's sort of the mafioso kind of scumbag but has power and then stefano rises up to be sort of a clashing figure he's an alternative for lila and for everybody else well marcello is abusive stefano seems kind marcello is greedy and corrupt stefano is much more generous and wholesome he empowered lila when he bought those shoes buying those shoes meant he believed in her that she could exist, she was free despite her limitations and her limited education. By selling the shoes to Marcello, it undercuts all that. Now he's no longer in opposition to Marcello, he's subordinate to Marcello. Because clearly Marcello did something that, whether it's just money or whatever, that Stefano doesn't exist outside of the Solara sort of sphere of influence. He is firmly a part of it, and he sold his wife down the river. He sold her dream down the river to the one guy she hated the most. So Stefano's saying that he believed in her, but did he really? Because he sold her out. So for Lila, that's the biggest betrayal ever, not because of the shoes and the leather and all that, but what the shoes symbolized. It was it was everything to her. It was her creativity. It was her identity as an artist. It was her freedom. It was her act of rebellion against the crappy circumstances she'd been put in. And it's all washed to the window when you see him wearing those shoes, smiling. So I've read the other books. You haven't. What do you think this means for Stefano and Lila's relationship? You think they're going to live happily oh, ever after? I mean, I I would. I mean, knowing Lila <laughs> as a character, there's just no way. I mean, there's it's there's done. no way that yeah. I mean, yeah. But even if she was like kind of like halfway in the relationship to begin with, there's just no way that I wouldn't I would see her as a character like continuing with the relationship in the same way. Okay, I think maybe one more um, theme that we have to talk about is identity, and I think what this book is saying about identity is that it's a construct. And what I mean is not just that identity can change over time. That's a theme that we see in all kinds of books. I mean, there's a specific genre of books called the Bildungsroman, which is a coming-of-age novel. Funny enough, this book is actually what's called a Kunstlerroman, which is a coming-of-age novel about someone who becomes an artist. So this is a Kunstlerroman about Elena as she becomes a writer. Um, But anyway, this book isn't just saying that identity changes over time what i think is this book is suggesting that identity can be created co-opted morphed dissolved by other people and by circumstances so what you need to remember is the frame narrative this book is elena in the present tense writing the story of lila cerulo and her friendship with lila so Everything we get about Lila comes from Elena. So Lila wants to disappear, and Elena, whether in an act of vengeance or love, says, Mm-mm, not going to happen. If you think you're going to make your identity disappear by taking all your stuff and, and not being there for your son, I'm going to build it right back up in these books, and you'll live forever in these books. It's a little similar. I never thought about it until just now to Lolita in the sense where yes. H.H. Yep. says that he's le- giving her – her he's doing her like the best service ever by keeping her memory alive now elena is not 
Humbert Humbert. But anyway, Elena is writing a story about her brilliant friend, um, and she's co-opting Lila's identity for her own purpose. So one scene where I think this theme really becomes prominent is uh, there's a scene when they're shooting off fireworks. Do you want to explain what happens in the fireworks scene, and then I'll explain how it connects to the identity theme? Yeah, so I won't explain the dissolving margins, because I think that you will be able to do a better job of doing that, but I'll sort of explain what's happening up to that point. So essentially, there's like this big competition between the Solaras and everybody else in the neighborhood, and this is happening during New Year's. As you'll recall, we mentioned earlier, there was this big New Year's celebration that Stefano put together for the neighborhood in an effort to sort of, you know, get everybody um, back on friendly terms again. So everyone's out on the balcony having a good time and, you know, uh, intermingling with each other when Reno, Lila's brother, and, you know, some of the other boys in the neighborhood decide to get into a little battle with the Solara brothers over fireworks. Um, the Solaras are in their own little house uh, kind of across the way, and they start to shoot fireworks up in the air, and they have a competition over who has the most fireworks. So, like, this goes on for a while. They just keep shooting fireworks into the sky, Eventually, uh, it's sort of revealed that the that Reno and, and, you know, Stefano and the other boys win the competition because they have more fireworks because now they're friends with Stefano who has money to provide fireworks for them. And you could tell the Solara brother th brothers think we've got this because they always do. But then they've got Stefano and his group, uh, Reno, and everybody has more. So when the Solara brothers realize, hey, we might lose this because we weren't anticipating such stiff competition they literally just start start shooting guns at them across the way um and that scene is interesting for a lot of reasons but why i think it's interesting is elena describes how in that moment lila experiences what she calls dissolving margins so as the fireworks are going off lila's really quiet and sort of to herself she says that in that moment everything around her and her own brother's identity particularly just seemed to dissolve like his body his person his who he is just the cells seemed to just disappear and go away from her and she was by herself and she describes this process as like almost a molecular thing like there's this sort of plasma web that's like keeping all of us together and whole and in that moment it all just sort of dissolved for her and I think that that incident really informs her choice later on to try to just dissolve herself away but what's interesting is how it connects to the identity theme, which is she's basically saying that the identities that we see as like static and fixed are not. Yeah. So when her brother dissolves before her very eyes, I think it's emblematic of all of our identities. Like everything that we think is true and firm can just be gone like that because our identities don't exist outside of how they are perceived by other people. Yeah, and I think to add to a further point of that um – there's also like a certain ugliness that comes with violence. And at this point, you know, it's almost expected that Solara brothers would do something crazy like that, but it wasn't expected for her brother to react in the same way. And so Lila, all of a sudden, like it has no idea who her brother is. It's a complete stranger to her. Okay. So through the course of this episode so far, I think we've talked about a lot of the key moments and scenes in the book. Um, and through that, we've talked about a lot of the key characters there are two characters that we haven't really discussed that I think we need to because when we go on to the second book and subsequent books, they're essential. So 
we are talking about the Saratori family, um, and specifically the father, Donato, and the son, Nino. So, Ivan, why don't you tell us a little bit about Donato, and then I'll tell about uh, talk about Nino, and we'll go. So, this is a interesting character for uh, a number of reasons. The first one is that this is uh, when we describe like the selling of the shoes as sort of being an image for betrayal uh, between you know like Lila and her partner, like somebody who's supposed to value her. This is more like the relationship that Donato has to the story is more of like a betrayal of innocence. Donato is uh, described in, in some parts of the story as sort of like an ideal father. So he's somebody that kind of takes an interest in his kids and tries to be like a, a good man. Far from the truth of what what is what is actually happening. This is like one of the areas where I think like maybe there's a little bit of disconnect between like the um, like the narrator and like the reality of what's going on in the book. The first instance we get of Donato is that he moves neighborhoods, and there's always there's, there's like sort of like this like relationship that he has with this woman Melina, who is a widow. She lives in the neighborhood, and everyone thinks that she's like crazy because she's going around telling everybody that Donato is writing her love letters. Also, I should add that she's a, they're very poor. As I said, she's a widow. I think her like main profession is like cleaning like the neighborhood stairs. Um, so like every night her and her daughter go and like clean the stairs. That's like, anyway, it doesn't matter. So she's like telling everybody that uh, her and Donato have like this fling and everybody thinks that she's crazy, um, including Elena for a little bit. Throughout the book, her mental condition like severely diminishes. Um, you know, she's already lost her husband, but she, um, She's also at this point lost Donato, who's moved to another neighborhood, um, and she clearly like misses him a lot. And is even at the sight of him, she goes like crazy. She like uh, starts to think that like he's coming back for her and stuff like this. And no one believes her. No over one him believes because- her. Not even you believe her. As soon as you read this book, you'll be like, I don't even believe that either. You know what? I'm not. I don't trust this person. You read that, and then all of a sudden, it's revealed. that Melina receives a copy of a of a poetry book that Donato writes and he's a conductor like, but then in he's his a train conductor time, he's a yeah. writer he's yeah he's, he's sort of like a like a like an artist i guess yeah he's a but he is a train conductor by profession and uh he writes this poetry book and it's like the first page is like dedicated to Melina um or it's like written somewhere in there that's like a little dedicated. note he like yeah. gave her a, a copy and it's it like completely like throws her off. It throws her off, but it also like validates like everything that she's she been was saying. Right, she was completely right. That was shocking. That that part was really shocking to me. Keep in mind, Donato has a family. He has two kids, right? I think, and uh, he has Mar- a wife. It, it's Marissa and Nino. And Nino Marissa is yeah. a little bit less important than Nino, but yeah, and he has a wife for sure. This is a this is the middle, family man. This is a middle age. This is a family man. He's a middle aged father. He has kids. He has a job, and he has a wife. So. You know, this is uh this part of the validate this part gets validated from Molina's side of the story entirely. I mean, you you now look at Donato as a different person. He gets even more scummy than that, if you could believe it. Throughout the story, as Elena's continuing her education, she's presented with some opportunities to sort of travel. One of the opportunities she's given is that she's given an opportunity to travel to an island that I think like one of her like te- former teachers, like friend owns Nella yeah Nella and she basically has Elena as sort of like a bed and breakfast employee is what I would describe it as it's very chill it's like hey you do a little bit of work for me and then you can hang on the beach and do your thing and you can live here and it's like you know it's like for the first time that she's really traveled outside of uh outside of her neighborhood or outside of her city and it's the first moment when we really see some distance from Lila 
like uh, but again though elena writes letters lila writes one letter back yeah, she gets like she starts to get in her own head about it and even at the at the point that lila writes one letter back and like describes the situation as not being super good for her in the moment elena's like i'm coming back like she's like i I'm, i need to leave my really good situation right now to go help you um unrelated to what's going on with donato so donato so uh, we also mentioned that uh, Elena has a crush on Donato's son, who Nino, who Troy will talk about later. Donato brings his family to the bed and breakfast that Elena is working at without Nino, his son, and trigger warning um, for sexual abuse. One night, uh, Elena is laying down in bed, and Nino, out of nowhere, just comes into her room and talks to her for a little bit but not before groping her and basically sexually assaulting her for no reason. Like, I mean, obviously for no reason, because she's a 15 year old girl. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was scumbag, right? Keep in mind, this is a family man. This is also the father of her crush. So to me, this is like clearly one of the biggest betrayals, uh, a betrayal of innocence that to me drove a lot of the story. And I think it, it drives a lot of like the social aspects that we, that we see throughout the book of you know the patriarchy and uh the behavior of men towards women because even after this is this is happening he also like professes his love to her later on in the book like shortly before the wedding he like finds her and he's like he's back in town he's yeah. like lingering around she's got a boyfriend yeah she's got a boyfriend um antonio who's uh, who's uh melina's a, son yeah so that, it's convoluted yeah so <laughs> so elena's <laughs> dating uh this guy antonio who is the son of Melina. As you will remember, Melina's the person that uh, was validated when she was telling everybody that Donato had like a, a crush on her. After this, uh, Donato comes back into town and she's like walking and uh, Elena and, and Antonio are walking through like the, actually that same tunnel um, that we had mentioned earlier when um, Lila took her through to get to the and beach. He tries to, walk. to leave. He yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so she decides to confront him not directly, but with the help of Antonio. Um, and so she like basically tells him, tells Antonio to essentially stick up for her. But Antonio, but so you said stand up for her, but it's kind of double edged because she doesn't tell Antonio that, that he assaulted her. Assaulted her. Yeah, I think yeah. assault is probably the best word for it. Um, but she wants, so she's like, hey, you need to stand up for your mom and get this guy out of here, which I think Elena does care about. But really, she's using that to get him away from her because, you know, and I think it's important to note, too, unless I'm just mistaken, he really did, like, take her innocence from her. Like, that she was a young child. I don't think she'd ever been with anyone like that before, right? Because hadn't she just talked about, like, barely kissing Gino, the yeah. pharmacist on the cheek or yeah. something? So, like, this was really a formative ugly horrific thing and this sort of not that it wouldn't be horrific at any time yeah. but like formative i would say for sure a betrayal of innocence that's the only way yeah. i can think about it i mean it's also a betrayal like i said of of a adult and a child like clearly somebody you should know better but yeah and then he, he i mean he gets like i think he also writes her like a, a poem or something like that i mean he like he really tries to go after he says he has uh, the poem and he wants to read him he's a sicko he really is a gross guy yeah but that came out of the blue though that the whole scene when she was in the on, in the bed that came i kind of thought blue. he i kind of saw it coming a really? little bit because he, saw, he was too, he was presented as too good to be true i mean they're like he's playing with the kids in the pool the ocean he's throwing around I was like mm, we're gonna see but see they they already had like the author already had the opportunity of like like portraying him in a in a bad light by talking about the situation with Melina, 
So I don't know, like it came out of the because I mean that's like Molina's like as his age I'm assuming. Yeah. Um. So when I saw that he was like so enticed by Elena, I was like, what? This is like crazy. Yeah. Okay. So should I talk about his son? Yeah. <laughs> so his son. So we've got Donato Saratori and Nino Saratori. Nino does not like his dad. In fact, when the father, the wife, and the daughter are at the little beach place that Elena is spending part of her summer, Nino's not there, much to Elena's disappointment. Um, and it becomes clear that he's making up excuses to not be there when his dad's there. But then his dad's going to have to leave, and that's when Nino arrives. So uh, Donato or Nino are kind of there at the same – not really there at the same time with much overlap. A little bit, I think. But um, – Nino professes to Elena that he hates his dad, that his dad took advantage of Melina. He knew exactly what he was doing. He's a scumbag, blah, blah, blah. And Elena's kind of shocked to hear him talking about his dad like that. But that sort of gets validated when later on his dad assaults her. So she sort of has this situation going on where she has feelings for Nino. Um, They kiss, right, once. Um, And then the dad repulses her yeah she can't stop thinking of of nino as as his father now after this is all said and done what's interesting about nino is he represents something kind of outside of the town so they were in the town but then they left and then the only time nino kind of comes back is he attends high school or middle school at the same place as um as elena Elena, but they're in different grades Nino has a reputation for being very smart as well, very opinionated. He's cosmopolitan. He's learned. He reads newspapers. He's very opinionated. I mean, he's this sort of quintessential kind of scholar, academic in the making. And so Elena sort of looks up to him like that. And when you contrast that with the boy that she is dating, I guess he's a man also. He's in his 20s, a young man. Antonio. Antonio is not educated. He's not refined. I think he's pretty well-intentioned. I mean, he wants to – he buys a nice suit. He puts himself in debt to buy a suit for Elena to go to the wedding. Um, But he's a mechanic, right? So he's very much – I don't want to say he's like the grimier side of things, but he's the sort of – Working class. He's working class. He's blue-collar. Nino's very white-collar, poet, dreamer. And so she's sort of pulled in these two directions, but not really because her heart is with Nino the entire time. So you sort of, I don't know, I felt bad for Antonio. I feel bad for, and yeah, I feel bad for Antonio, but I mean, it's also, it also speaks to the, I guess, the freedom that Elena has, that she has these two to choose between, yeah. Uh, exactly. Her education has made it so that Nino is an option for her because if she had not gone to school like Lila, she probably just would have been with Antonio yeah. or somebody like that. Um, she and Antonio have... How would you describe their relationship? It's just kind of like friendly, transactional a little bit. Like they're intimate a little bit, but there's like no love there. Yeah. Antonio clearly likes her more than she likes him. Um, I think she feels safe with him. I think he's very comfortable to her. I think Nino is exciting to her. Um, and so at the end of the book, uh, Elena sort of rejects Antonio a little bit and kind of pursues Nino and flirts with Nino a little bit. Um, And then Nino becomes an essential character later in the story. Like maybe, maybe the third most important character in the book, possibly. So if you're having trouble keeping up with all the characters in the book, I I want you to know. So did I, like I had to, I have 
constantly have to reference who each person is. Uh, at this point now that I've read it twice, I think I un- like I can remember most names now. But you know, aside from the fact that they're all very Italian names and they all kind of sound the same, like Nino, Reno, uh, yeah, it was just Stefano, like Stef- Stefano, Marcello, Michelle. Marcello, yeah, I mean, it's all like I'm surprised these people don't have the same name. Honestly, like. I mean, I, I'm sure that the editor, like, if, if these people really did have their real names, I'm sure they're probably, a lot of them are probably going to be called Nino. I mean, we have Fernando, Nunzia, Rafaela, Reno, Reno number two, Elena, Maria, Stefano, Panuccia, Alfonso, Alfredo, Jessapina. Now, what, what I'll say, though, is I think that don't be intimidated by that. You will get these characters' will, names yeah. down, no problem. Yeah, um, she does a pretty expert job at that. I read them all, like, boom, 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 boom. Um, and by the time I was like at the end of the first one and end of the second one, I just, I never consulted the thing again. I knew exactly who was talking. Now, if you take breaks, if you take breaks between them, you're probably going to have to go back. Like, I don't think we're going to, we're not going to do the next book in the series for a couple months, probably I would say four or five months. So I will probably have to refresh, especially the minor characters like Panuccia and Gigliola. Yeah, I if they come up in the next book, I'm gonna have to reference the, <laughs> yeah. the glossary. I'll they tell you that right now. Okay, um, so now we're gonna do what I th- think we're gonna try to do in every episode, which is find a passage that we just really like for some reason, maybe for the prose style. So my passage, we talked about dissolving margins and the idea of how it connects to identity. I'm just gonna read the description of Lila experiencing that dissolving margins phenomena in the firework episode. So it says, On December 31st of 1958, Lila had her first episode of dissolving margins. The term isn't mine. She always used it. She said that on those occasions, the outlines of people and things suddenly dissolved, disappeared. That night, on the terrace where we were celebrating the arrival of 1959, when she was abruptly struck by that sensation, she was frightened and kept it to herself, still unable to name it. It was only years later, one night in November 1980, we were 36, were married, had children, that she recounted in detail what had happened to her then, what still sometimes happened to her, and she used that term for the first time. We were outside, on the roof terrace of one of the apartment buildings in the neighborhood. Although it was very cold, we were wearing light, low-cut dresses so that we would appear attractive. We looked at the boys, who were cheerful, aggressive, dark figures carried away by the party. The food, the sparkling wine. They were setting off fireworks to celebrate the new year, a ritual in which, as I will explain later, Lila had a large role, so that now she felt content, watching the streaks of fire in the sky. But suddenly, she told me, in spite of the cold, she had begun to sweat. It seemed to her that everyone was shouting too loudly and moving too quickly. This sensation was accompanied by nausea, and she had had the impression that something absolutely material, which had been present around her and around everyone and everything forever, but imperceptible, was breaking down the outlines of persons and things and revealing itself. Her heart had started beating uncontrollably. She had begun to feel horror at the cries emerging from the throats of all those who were moving out about on the terrace amid the smoke, amid the explosions, as if the sound obeyed new, unknown laws. 
her nausea increased. The dialect had become unfamiliar. The way our wet throats bathed the words in the liquid of saliva was intolerable. A sense of repulsion had invested all of the bodies in movement, their bone structure, the frenzy that shook them. How poorly made we are, she had thought, how insufficient. The broad shoulders, the arms, the legs, the ears, noses, eyes seemed to her attributes of monstrous beings who had fallen from some corner of the black sky. And the disgust, who knows why, was concentrated in particular on her brother Reno, the person who was closest to her, the person she loved most. She seemed to see him for the first time as he really was, a squat animal form, thick-set, the loudest, the fiercest, the greediest, the meanest. The tumult of her heart had overwhelmed her. She felt as if she were suffocating. Too smoky, too foul-smelling, too much flashing fire in the cold. Lila had tried to calm herself. She had said to herself, I have to seize the stream that's passing through me. I have to throw it out from me. But at that point, she had heard among the shouts of joy a kind of final detonation and something like the breath of a wing beat had passed her by. Someone was shooting not rockets and firecrackers, but a gun. Her brother Reno was shouting unbearable obscenities in the direction of the yellow flashes. On the occasion when she had told me that story, Leela also said that the sensation she had called dissolving margins, although it had come on her distinctly only that once, wasn't completely new to her. For example, she often had the sensation of moving for a few fractions of a second into a person or a number or a syllable, violating its edges. And the day her father threw her out the window, she had felt absolutely certain as she was flying towards the asphalt that small, very friendly reddish animals were dissolving the composition of the street, transforming it into a smooth, soft material. But that New Year's Eve... She had perceived for the first time unknown entities that broke down the outline of the world and demonstrated its terrifying nature. This had deeply shaken her. First of all, just beautiful writing. We talked earlier about how she's a little more simple than some of the stylists, uh, a Morrison, a McCarthy, a Faulkner, a Joyce, or someone like that. But she has it in her to really, I mean, when she wants to, she can show exactly what she's capable of. Um, I think she chooses to not do it too often because she wants the accessibility and the kind of first-person narration. Um, but again, I just love the way it relates to the themes. Lila is explaining how everything that we think is true and concrete really is not. It's all sort of an illusion and that our identities are created. And that's, to me, what this book is about. It's about Elena recreating her friend's identity after she's made a conscious choice to um, destroy it. Okay, so the part of the book that I want to read comes at chapter 14. And just to give the listener some context about what's going on, this is around the time that uh, Elena is presented the opp opportunity to go to high school. As Troy and I previously discussed, um, Elena gets education opportunities that Lila does not get. And so during this specific time, Elena's high school is actually further away from the neighborhood. And so her father takes her out on the, to the city and, you know, essentially shows her how to get to school. So let me start reading. The boundaries of the neighborhood faded in the course of that summer. One morning, my father took me with him. Since I was enrolling in high school, he wanted me to know what public transportation I would have to take and what route when I went in in October to that new school. It was a beautiful, very clear, windy day. I felt loved, coddled, 
To my affection for him was added a crescendo of admiration. He knew the enormous expanse of the city, ultimately. He knew where to get the metro, or tram, or a bus. Outside he behaved with a sociability, a relaxed courtesy, that at home he almost never had. He was friendly toward everyone, on the metro and the buses, in the offices, and he managed to let his interlocutor know that he worked for the city and that, if he liked, he could speed up practical matters, open doors. We spent the entire day together, the only one in our lives. I don't remember any others. He dedicated himself to me as if he wanted to communicate in a few hours everything useful he had learned in the course of his existence. He showed me Piazza Garibaldi and the station that was being built. According to him, it was so modern that the Japanese were coming from Japan to study it, in particular the columns, and build an identical one in their country. But he confessed that he liked the old station better. He was more attached to it. Ah well. Naples, he said, had always been like that. It's cut down, it's broken up, and then it's rebuilt, and the money flows and creates work. He took me along Corso Garibaldi to the building that would become my school. He dealt in the office with extreme good humor. He had the gift of congeniality, a gift that in the neighborhood and at home he kept hidden. He boasted of my extraordinary report card to a janitor whose wedding witness he discovered on the spot. He knew well. I heard him repeating often, everything in order, or everything that can be done is being done. He showed me Piazza Carlo Terzo, the Albergo dei Poveri, the Botanical Garden, Via Foria, the museum. He took me on the Via Constantinopoli to Porta Alba and to Piazza Dante to Via Toledo. I was overwhelmed by the names, the noise of the traffic, the voices, the colors, the festive atmosphere, the effort of keeping everything in mind so that I could talk about it later with Lila, the ease with which he chatted with the pizza maker from whom he bought me a pizza melting with ricotta, the fruit seller from whom he bought me a yellow peach. Was it possible that only our neighborhood was filled with conflicts and violence while the rest of the city was radiant and benevolent? He took me to the place where he worked, in Piazza Municipio. There too, he said, everything had changed. The trees had been cut down. Everything was broken up. Now see all the space? The only thing left is the Maschio Angiolino, but it's beautiful, little one. There are two real males in Naples, your father and that fellow there. We went to the city hall. He greeted this person and that. Everyone knew him. With some, he was friendly and introduced me, repeating yet again that in school I had gone a nine in Italian and a nine in Latin. With others, he was almost mute. Only indeed, yes, you command and I obey. Finally, he said that he would show me Vesuvius from the close-up and the sea. It was an unforgettable moment. We went toward Via Caracciolo. As the wind grew stronger, the sun brighter. Vesuvius was a delicate, pastel-colored shape, at whose base the whitish stones of the city were piled up, with the earth-colored slides of the Castel de Lovo and the sea. But what a sea! It was very rough and loud. The wind took your breath away, pasted your clothes to your body, and blew the hair off your forehead. We stayed on the other side of the street in a small crowd watching the spectacle. The waves rolled in like blue metal tubes carrying an egg white of foam on their peaks, then broke in a thousand glittering splinters and came up to the street with an O of wonder and the fear of those watching. What a pity that Lila wasn't there. I felt dazed by the powerful gusts, by the noise. I had the impression that I had the impression that, although I was absorbing much of that sight, many things, too many, were scattering around me without letting me grasp them. I felt dazed by the powerful gusts, by the noise. I had the impression that, 
Although I was absorbing much of that sight, many things, too many, were scattering around me without letting me grasp them. My father held tight to my hand as if he were afraid that I would slip away. In fact, I had wished to leave him, run, move, cross the street, be struck by the brilliant scales of the sea. At that tremendous moment, full of light and sound, I pretended I was alone in the newness of the city. Knew myself, with all life ahead, exposed to the mutable fury of things, but surely triumphant. I, I and Lila, we too with that capacity that together, only together, we had to seize that mass of colors, sounds, things, and people, and express it and give it power. So the reason that I chose this passage to read is because of some of the things that we've been talking about with my overview of the history of Italy. As I described in my sort of like three minute lecture, um, Italy was very poor after World War One and World War Two. There's a period of an economic it's been coined by historians as sort of like uh the italian economic miracle this is a point in like the late 1950s where italy through you know funds given to them by the united states under the marshall plan and obviously through like their own efforts as well you know become sort of an economic i wouldn't say like an economic superpower but i would certainly say that they saw a great increase in their economy this is a time when like you know italian fashion italian cars you know these sort of things are being uh thrust into the public spotlight and so elena right here is describing a scene where you know she goes out of her neighborhood into the city and the city is like vibrant it's radiant there's uh, a lot of movement there's things going on there's things being built you know the economy is almost like flourishing and you see that through the eyes of elena by contrast as well you know elena poses the question you know is my neighborhood the only neighborhood in Italy that's like you know full of violence and full of uh fighting because you know like she sees outside of her neighborhood now it's like you know the complete opposite and it's beautiful and it's you know there's a, a economic miracle going on so I think that, that that highlights the the stark contrast between you know Elena's neighborhood and the material conditions of the city and the rest of Italy. The other thing that you know we uh, touched on as well in this podcast was the education aspect of this. Uh, as you'll hear, you know, when we did the analysis of education, we talked about why Elena's parents were more open to the idea of letting Elena go to school. And I had brought up the point that you know it's probably because of her father. Her, her father, as I as I stated, is a city porter, so. So he is friendly with the people of the city so i would imagine that when you're you know a city a city porter at that time you know there's probably diplomats there's probably you know lawyers there's doctors there's people that you meet throughout the city that you know are highly educated and so i think that her father probably has a, a different view of education that uh, lila's father would have and i think because of it you know elena sort of gets uh gets to enjoy the benefit of that Whereas Lila doesn't, right? Because her father doesn't see the value of that. I'm glad that I chose this passage. I think I haven't read the next book. I do think that this um, this sense of adventure and the sense of exploring the city is probably what's going to drive much of the story in these four books. And I can't wait to read the next one because I want to see, you know, where she ends up and where she ends up going throughout life. And I think that it's going to be very essential to the story. So. All right, Troy. So now that we've listened to this beautiful story and hopefully beautiful podcast, what book are we choosing next? Next episode, we are going to be discussing William Faulkner's As I Lay Dying, um, a very different book from My Brilliant Friend. I'm looking forward to coming back to this series, but I think we want to give it some space and kind of we don't want four of the first five episodes of our podcast to be about the same series. So if you liked this, we will come back to it. If you didn't like it, then 
have no fear because we're moving on to something totally different. So, All right, everyone, that's the show for today. If you like what you heard, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever you're listening on. As always, you can email us if you have any topics you'd like covered or any books you'd like us to discuss. We love hearing from our listeners. Our email is thethousandlivespodcast at gmail.com. With that being said, thank you and good night. Take care, and in the meantime, happy reading. Mm-hmm.